But the, the thing is, when you're faced with this and it's your livelihood, the panic sets in and they're trying to catch, you know, they might send out a thousand of these things. And if they just get one or two people that are so panicked that they just click that link or, you know, send the gift card as soon as possible, the gift card codes, that's the, the only person they need, right? One out of a thousand. Welcome to Crime News Insider, presented by the San Diego Deputy DA's Association. We are real prosecutors with decades of experience and are here to give you our inside take on the latest crime news. Here are your hosts, Deputy DA's Lori Hoff and Jorge Delbertillo. Today, we're going to talk about ransomware and internet scams. This comes after recently here in San Diego, Scripps Health was a victim of a ransomware attack where now for the past four weeks, they have been under attack or still recovering from the attack of a cyber ransomware. And all the patients had to reschedule appointments, had trouble getting their blood work and scheduling procedures. And then also in the news, there was the Colonial Pipeline attack, which got national news. And here to talk with us today is Deputy District Attorney Ryan Karkenny. Deputy District Attorney Ryan Karkenny is a member of the Computer and Technology Crimes High Tech Task Force, otherwise known as the CATCH team. In this assignment, Ryan handles a variety of cases involving internet and cyber crime, as well as uh, when technology is used as an instrumentality of the crime. He's been a Deputy DA with the San Diego DA's office since 2009, and over the course of his career, he's handled a wide variety of cases, murder, torture, robbery, you name it. Ryan has received extensive training in the area of digital forensics, digital evidence, and has attended the National Computer Forensics Institute as well. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me today. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, you know what? Before we start, I wanted to say congratulations to Lori Hoff, our co-host here, who was just recently promoted to be the assistant chief of the gang unit. Congratulations. Thanks. Don't tell people that, though. I know. Well, I can always edit this this out later. Congratulations. That is cool. Congratulations for for anyone that's listening out there. uh, This is a big deal. Obviously, San Diego County is uh, the DA's office is like second biggest DA's office in California, one of the biggest offices in the nation. So excellent promotion, excellent uh, person to lead the gang unit. So congratulations, Lori. Thank you. Appreciate it. So Ryan, we hear in the news here about Scripps Health, they're under attack. And then we hear in the news about the colonial pipeline attack. What is a ransomware attack? Yeah, uh, so ransomware is, is basically a type of malware that gets installed on a victim system. And what it does is once it's in the system, it encrypts all of their files. So you're talking about documents, photos, videos. Imagine losing all your family photos, by the way, right? Because that's, that's what's at stake here for the individual user, right? So it encrypts all their files. And then the bad actor demands a ransom in order to unlock or decrypt the files. That's what ransomware is in a nutshell. So in these cases, we're seeing big companies being attacked. I mean, Scripps Health and Colonial Pipeline. Um, do you do you think that these attackers are are like lone wolves? Are they working together? Are they are they United States attackers or out out of the U.S.? Do we how do we know anything at this point? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, generally, for the bigger ones, you're not going to see a lone wolf, as you put it, or an individual uh, hacker because, you know, it's such a such a large hack and, and it's, um, 
complicated. It's so complicated that multiple individuals are generally working together when it comes to something the size of like a colonial pipeline or scripts. They're, they're normally going to be working in, you'd call it a cyber gang or, or a hacking crew, you know, depending on how you want to phrase it. And um, it's funny because just before recording, I was uh, doing a little more research and looking at the news. I don't know if you guys saw that JBS uh, was just uh, reported to be a victim of hacking as well. I'm not sure if it's ransomware or some other sort of hack, but they're actually the largest meat supplier uh, to the United States. They supply one fifth of all meat. So we're gonna see some meat shortages, just like we saw the uh, gasoline shortages uh, pretty soon, I'm sure. And now the you know Colonial Pipeline, they've recovered and Scripps Health has not still to this day, they're still recovering here. Why has Colonial Pipeline recovered so quickly and Scripps Health hasn't? So Colonial Pipeline made a decision that is generally um, what law enforcement does not recommend and what some people actually question as being unethical and that's paying the ransom. So at this juncture, it looks like it's worked out for them. The reports are coming out that uh, Colonial paid about $4.4 million in the ransom. And apparently uh, the hackers did what they say they were going to do and they unlocked what they needed to unlock. But uh, it's, it, you know, it's still under investigation right now with Scripps. It's still an ongoing investigation being handled um, by, the, by the FBI. But I would uh, assume at this point that Scripps has not paid the ransom, and that's why they're still uh, offline. When you talk about $4.4 million, in what currency is that? Yeah, generally, we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency. Most specifically, you hear about Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a big buzzword that we're hearing a lot uh, in the media. Bitcoin is essentially a type of cryptocurrency, and it's it's the most popular uh, cryptocurrency, probably the most well-known cryptocurrency. The last survey that I saw, though, said there was about 10,000 publicly uh, known traded cryptocurrencies. So there are a lot of them out there, but uh, Bitcoin is the biggest one. It's the most well-known. Jorge claims that he never bought Bitcoin, but I... I... I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I think he might be a secret millionaire. No, I, I wish I had bought it way back then. Um, but is it an investment in internet fake money a good investment? I don't know. <laughs> why are, why are they demanding Bitcoin? Why is that the, the currency that they choose? Cryptocurrency is a form of currency that is decentralized. It's not regulated by any sort of government or any sort of central authority like traditional fiat currency is. Crypto, specifically, you know, Bitcoin, it's based on a technology called the blockchain. And it actually has several uses. You may have heard the term NFTs in the media recently, non-fungible tokens. Um, this is also based on blockchain technology. But the reason why they, they ask for Bitcoin, they ask for cryptocurrency, is because how anonymous uh, a user can be when they receive this, this sort of funding. Compared to traditional fiat currency, cryptocurrency is much harder to trace. It provides a level of anonymity that traditional forms of payment, either in cash, credit or check uh, that we typically haven't seen before. And I'm jumping ahead a bit, but how how does law enforcement, either federally or locally or, or working together, then try to respond to those types of cyber attacks? Yeah, so um, it's it's difficult, and it's it is a cat and mouse game. You know, it's always uh, the technology's there, and the criminals try to get ahead, and then law enforcement tries to get ahead. Um, just as with you know, traditional evidence where someone leaves a hair at a crime scene or a fingerprint at a crime scene. Um, generally, there's going to be some sort of digital evidence or digital breadcrumb left at a crime scene, whether it be um, access logs on the server side of things. The really good ones are going to be harder to catch. They're going to be harder to find. And what we're looking for is that one mistake 
where we can just keep following the breadcrumbs of where they go, where we're then looking at the ISPs or the internet service providers. What location does it go back to? Whose internet service provider is, uh, is registered under that account? And again, I don't want to get too far in, in, in the weeds, uh, but uh, that's generally how they would do it. So when people talk about the dark web, what are they referring to? So the dark web or the deep web is um, a generic term that's used to describe what, what is basically an unindexed region of the internet. And that's where many illegal goods and services can be found. Generally, it has to be accessed with a special web browser called Tor, T-O-R, known as the Onion Router. Um, and when I say unindexed portion of the region, it's something where if you do a Google search, it's not going to come up because Google is not indexing those web pages. There's a little bit more to the, the backside as far as the technology goes, but that's essentially what it is. It's an unindexed portion of the internet where general users, when they're searching, you know, Yahoo, I don't think Ask uses a search engine anymore, right? I'm, I'm I, we all uh, use Ask Jeeves. I mean, <laughs> highly yeah, underrated search engine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's something that you're not going to be able to get to through a, a typical web browser like Mozilla, Firefox, Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and you're not going to be able to get there through traditional um, search engines like Google. And I'm sure this is just websites mainly for criminal uses. Is that where they, they reside on the internet? A lot of it is on the dark web. And that's especially when you get into actual drug sales online. Um, you can go to a website. It, it, it looks like eBay, but it's on the dark web and it's uh, to purchase people's credit card information, right? So you just put in the little uh, drop boxes or what's known as a combo box. Do you want an American Express or a Visa? Do you want uh, one that's been an account established for six months or longer? Put it in, uh, pay your money and you get a credit card sent to your email address. So it's very, very easy. I was just going to bring it back to our, our local San Diego and ask you what types of things are we seeing here? What types of cases are you working here that you can tell us about? Sure. Um, so a, a broad range of technology-based crimes, and you know that's the focus of what we're talking about today. So everything from social media stalkers to you know, financial crimes that are facilitated using technology. And new scams are popping up all the time, but generally what we're seeing is maybe an old scam that is facilitated in a shiny new wrapper where the technology is, is being used to facilitate the crime, like I said. Um, and especially coming out of, you know, the sheltering in place with COVID-19, uh, we saw a giant uptick in scams related to unemployment fraud, EDD fraud, right? Uh, we saw a massive uptick in... Um, stimulus fraud. So people tapping into other people's stimulus checks for the, for the COVID relief. But the biggest ones that we're seeing lately are where the perpetrators pretend to be, you know, from a legitimate source. So they're either pretending to be someone in the government or pretending to be a utility like SDG&E. And when it's on the government side, they're trying to convince you that you have to pay money to clear some sort of a warrant uh, that's out for, for your arrest or to resolve some sort of uh, tax issue. Or like I said, if they're pretending to be utility saying you have this massive unpaid bill that you have to pay just to keep the lights on. And you know, um, some cases I can't get into because they are still obviously ongoing, but uh, I've had one uh, where small business owner and every you know minute that they're not open is money out of their pocket right so they uh, got a call uh, is actually by email uh, saying that it was from SDGE &E and that if they didn't pay five thousand dollars you know immediately they were going to be turning the power off that day so of course you know it sounds kind of if you step back and look at it from a calm mind like we are right now it's like wait, wait, wait let's let's look into this is this real or not right that doesn't 
especially it didn't make sense because they were requesting the $5,000 payment in Home Depot gift cards, right? It's the gift card scam, which uh, is, is kind of it, the reason why they do that is because it's hard to track, just like cryptocurrency, like we were talking about earlier to tie that into, right? But the, the thing is, when you're faced with this and it's your livelihood, the panic sets in. And they're trying to catch, you know, they might send out a thousand of these things. And if they just get one or two people that are so panicked that they just click that link or, you know, send the gift card as soon as possible, the gift card codes, that's the only person they need, right? One out of a thousand. We are seeing a lot of the lottery scams as well. You'll get some sort of technology-based communication, whether it be a text message, email, saying that you've won the lottery. But guess what? You have to pay the taxes up front, right? Um, so, you know, you won uh, $5 million, but you got to send us $200,000 to pay the taxes up front. And then we'll go ahead and cut you the check for the rest of it. And I had a victim that did that. Uh-huh. And she lost her entire life savings because of it. Oh, man. Um, so it's it's it's, it's so sad. devastating. It's it, so devastating. And I f- do you find that there's a lot of um, like a lot of elderly people who are maybe not as tech savvy that fall prey to this? Yeah, unfortunately, it's some of our most vulnerable uh, members of our society that do fall victim to it. You know, and uh, but it doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be. Um, a lot of them are elders or you know people that. Um, into that category but uh as i was telling jorge when we were you know prior to recording i had i had a case and it was actually a scheme once we looked into it that was popping up all over the state where the victims were actually law firms and attorneys uh so you can even have the most you know a more sophisticated let's say uh, type of victim and they still fall for it too and in that scheme they were getting um emails uh through their website right you, you know contact us for you know to evaluate your case. They were getting emails from, you know, quote unquote, potential clients saying that there was some sort of uh, employment case where they got fired inappropriately and they wanted to hire them because they wanted to settle. And I won't name any companies right now, but basically it was a, it was a big scam. And the attorneys were never even talking to their potential clients over the phone. They were being retained all digitally via email. Contracts were signed digital via email. They were talking to this quote unquote uh, victim or client's employer all via email and settling with them by email. Mm. And then, uh, so it was like, you know, the easiest money they ever made. I was able to settle this bad firing case where someone was fired inappropriately in two days. And we settled for a hundred thousand dollars. I get 30% of that. But then the, you know, the fake client was telling them, Hey, I need the money right away. I know that they sent you the check already. Can you just forward me my 70% and you just keep the retainer fee? The attorneys were doing it. They were, they were sending them the money thinking that they had, they were going to make the 30%, even though the check hadn't cleared yet. That was a really sophisticated scheme. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they were, they were having people physically deliver fake checks uh, to the attorney's offices that it was supposedly coming from the employer for the settlement of the lawsuit. Uh, and so they, they have the check in hand. I'll, I'll, I'll be you know depositing this tomorrow. That's fine. I'll send, I'll send my client their money. This was so easy. I'll send it. Wow. And then now the attorneys are out the money. See, like, it would, even yeah. the smartest people in the best profession, <laughs> clearly, that attorneys are smart, right? Yeah, clearly, attorneys are big mistake. One of the, the smartest yeah, people exactly. in our society, and even they fall for it. <laughs> they fall for scams. I know it. It can be very embarrassing to admit you fell for a scam or anything, but I mean, we're all vulnerable to it. I I almost clicked on. Uh, a fake Ray-Ban sale. This was, I guess, going around the internet. I never heard about it. I saw it on Twitter. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like 50% off. And I clicked on it like an idiot. And my wife said, 
she's not an attorney, but smarter than I am. Uh, my wife said, is like, wait a second, is this real? Is this fake? I'm like, oh yeah, let me look it up. And just a quick Google search, dismiss that. It's like, oh, so Ryan, I, I just read um, an article that Summer Stefan wrote, who's our district attorney, talking about digital hygiene and how to protect ourselves. What is digital hygiene? So digital hygiene is the generic term that I like to use for doing all the things that are going to keep you secure from things like ransomware. Okay. Uh, and when we think about, uh, you know, cyber crimes or cybersecurity, it's always about security versus convenience. If something is more secure, it's going to be less convenient. But on the flip side, if it's extremely convenient, it's going to be less secure. And so big example or easy example is on your, on your cell phone, right? Your smartphone. It's really easy to not have a passcode on it to just be able to swipe it open and unlock very convenient, but that's extremely insecure. If you lose that phone, your life's probably on there, right? You could have mobile payment stuff on there. You know? So it's all, always about security versus convenience. And if you uh, would allow me, I'm going to jump into some of my, my top tips to try to keep yourself safe. At this yes, time. please do. Thank you. Please, good? please yeah. jump right yes. in. I like to get the word out there, you know, let me get my pen and paper uh, here. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first line of defense is always going to be using strong and unique uh, passwords or pass codes. Okay. I hate that. <laughs> I, I can't keep it all. Are you supposed to write all these passwords down? Okay. So, you know, that's one method, but of course, if someone gets a hold of that, then they have the keys to the kingdom, right? right? So you do have to be very safe. I recommend using a password manager, right? And there are lots of them out there. Uh, one password, last pass. Dash Lane, Chrome uh, browser has it built in. Uh, Safari on Apple. If you're an all Apple user, um, you know from their phone to your computer, it, it's built in by default in their uh, keychain. Right, uh, but uh, I won't say which one I use so that people won't go looking for my stuff in there. But um, <laughs> I do recommend doing that, and I use a password manager. Not only does it help you store your passwords and help you retrieve them when it's time to enter them, but it also helps you generate the passcode. Uh, you, you generally want to use long, at least ten digits. I recommend fifteen or above, actually. Um, oh my gosh. You want to use upper <laughs> and lower case. You want to use special characters, uh, and you want it to be alphanumeric. And that's why a password manager is is definitely is definitely key. Um, the other thing, and I'll just mention briefly, is like on your home networks, your home Wi-Fi. You do want to make sure that it is. Um, you, you have your SSID, which is the name of the network that's being broadcast out there, and then you have a passcode when someone sees it to try to log into your home Wi-Fi. Right. You always want to make sure you have some password enabled. And the good thing is nowadays most routers that get shipped by the ISPs. Uh, to your house or that they send to you automatically have it on, right? And they have some kind of weird password. The other thing is using Wi-Fi in public, right? Everyone loves free Wi-Fi, going to Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever and being on there. And that's okay to use. But what I would highly recommend is um, I wouldn't be doing my banking uh, while sitting in Starbucks on the open Wi-Fi, you know, without using a VPN or something like that, because uh, the guy next to you could be um, what we call shoulder surfing or digitally shoulder surfing. Look at all the traffic that's going over that unsecure Wi-Fi connection. So wow. you definitely, yeah, you definitely want to avoid that. Jorge, no, no more working up your cases remotely from Starbucks. Jorge. <laughs> You've blown Jorge's mind right now. Yeah, you sufficiently made me paranoid never to use a, a Wi-Fi in public again. But, well, I mean, like I said, you can use it for, for simple, easy things, but you just, I, I wouldn't be uh, paying off my mortgage and things like that uh, on there or buying your cryptocurrency. I wouldn't do that either <laughs> from a, uh, 
from the open Wi-Fi. Um, you also want to investigate what's known as 2FA or two-factor authentication for services that offer it. And most of the big ones offer it now or will be offering it shortly. Um, the big ones, Google, Apple, Microsoft, all offer two-factor authentication for um, signing into your accounts. And what two-factor authentication is, is that there's two factors, right? One is something you know, and the other one is something you have. That's the second factor. The, the thing that you know is your password. The second factor is going to generally be sometimes uh, a less secure ways. You know, when you get those things uh, text to your phone, when you try to log in and they send you a one-time code to your phone, Yeah. well, right. that, that's better than nothing. But let's say someone has stolen your phone or let's say that someone has done a, a SIM swapping scam, which I won't get into the details right now. And they're intercepting all of your text messages. They're going to have your two-factor, your, your second factor, right? So companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, Apple, they will have a, a, a unique code that's generated. So I won't go into all the details now, but you can look it up. It's called two-factor authentication. Um, you also want to avoid suspicious websites, right? So um I won't make any jokes here. You know, uh, Rayban.com that, that I went to is Rayban Ray spelled with an M yeah. because someone probably owns Rayban. Rayban. You accidentally type the M. Yeah, yeah, you look at it closely. You always want is to look. It's not it called Rayban. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, when you're when you're surfing, if you look at the um, web address uh, in your web browser, you want to make sure that the sites that you're on, especially again, if you're doing something that involves financial transactions or things where you're entering sensitive information, you want to make sure it's a secure website. So you're going to see HTTP. TPS in the browser address uh, part of the window uh, versus HTTP no S, right? You want to make sure that S is there. And most browsers, again, like Microsoft Edge, Chrome, Apple Safari, um, they'll have the the color of the bar where you type in the web address will actually be different on a secure website than an insecure website, or you'll see a little lock icon on that website versus no lock icon. Um, and that those are all visual cues that are put on the website to let you know, hey, um, my data that I'm entering isn't being broadcasted in the clear. Someone can just intercept it versus it's being encrypted as it's being sent out. So uh, if you're ever at what you think is your bank website, but it turns out it's not an HTTPS site, that's not your bank's website or probably not unless you have a, a bad bank, I guess. But <laughs> That is very interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. I didn't. So lots, lots of little helps. I am glad we're recording this so I can listen to it again and again because I'm like, VPN, 2FA, what is all this? Uh, so thank you for telling us this. And now I realize I probably have a ton of malware on my computer. <laughs> you wanted this to be a two-hour podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like um, it easily could be. It could. I mean, it, it's a, obviously to me, I find it a fascinating topic and there's, there's always more to discuss. Uh, let me go through a couple more quick tips. Right, quick, and then, quick tips um, to quick. run uh, Email is one of the biggest vectors of attack that we're seeing nowadays. Okay. So if you get emails from unknown senders, you want to always try to uh, avoid clicking on or downloading attachments or clicking on links from unknown senders, right? That's called a blind link. Um, you want to hover over it, see, see where the link's actually sending you. Um, actually look at who sent the email because sometimes it'll say, you know, from Netflix. But if you expand that little box and see where it's coming from, it's not coming from Netflix at all. It's coming from someone at earthlink.com, right? Um, so I think we've all gotten those. There's going to be telltale signs of a phishing email. Normally, we're going to see spelling mistakes, grammar mistakes. Um, if it's coming from your bank, guess what? Don't click on the link. Actually, just open a new tab and go to the bank's website yourself to address the issue that they're emailing you about. Don't click on the link. Um, the big one, another big one that I want to talk about, and it's important, especially because we were talking about ransomware earlier. One of the biggest ways that you can protect yourself against ransomware, because again, remember the leverage that they have is they have all your files encrypted and they're withholding them from you 
until you pay the ransom, right? Well, one of the things that you should be doing to be safe is routinely backing up your files, right? Because if you have a backup and they've basically encrypted all your files, guess what? Okay, I don't need to get back into those. I can just restore my whole system mm. from the backup that I've been saving, right? Uh, best practice is to have a local on-site backup. So you you know buy an extra hard drive. Um, both Windows and Mac OS have built-in utilities for backing up. Um, and uh, best case again, you know, if you're doing everything the right way, is to have an off-site backup as well. So some sort of a cl cloud backup solution like Carbonite, Backblaze, something like that. Um, you always want to have your uh, antivirus enabled and up to date on Windows. And then uh, one of the other big thing is always keep your devices up to date. I know some people hate updating their phones. Hey, it slows it down. That's what they think that you know they're just trying to slow down your device, but. These um, devices in our pockets, these supercomputers, they need to be kept up to date, just like the, the computer that you have at your house. And the updates that are coming out often, I would say almost every time, carry uh, security patches and vulnerability patches that are extremely important to keeping us safe. Yeah, those are some great tips. Thank you. Yeah, those are. Thank you so much, Ryan. For sure. Of course. Now I'm very scared. <laughs> so that's probably a good thing. Um, we should all be a, a little bit more, you know, protective of, of this highly technological society that we live in now. So it's helpful information that you gave us. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Well, do you want to stick around and take our quiz where we look at the laws on the books? Don't give them the option. Don't give it's, it's a yes. <laughs> well, you have to. They have to definitely, have more players. Than definitely do it. But I'll say I didn't cheat. Uh, we were having a discussion about cheating earlier and I didn't look at anything. <laughs> so I got to uh, say, so it, each week we look at the laws in the books, two are real, one is fake. And I just make one up and ask my panel of experts to see if they could identify which one is the fake. I was looking at the laws on the books in various laws related to computer crimes, and most of them are the same. So I went a different route. I looked at case law here and I selected four to see if you could find which one is the fake from the case law. Are you guys ready? Oh, you're getting trickier. You're getting a lot trickier. Case right? law, not even black letter law. It's, it's case law. You know, after I got swept by Lori and Leonard <laughs> last time, I'm like, I got to up it up and do four oh, and increase my chances of winning. Okay. I'm sure it's all from our, our jurisdiction too, right? So it'll be things I yeah. should be familiar with. <laughs> nope. Uh, throughout the, the nation. Um, all right. So. Item number one, in Michigan, an appellate court upheld the trial court's admission of Facebook posts in a gang murder case saying there's nothing on the face of the posts that would suggest that they were faked or hacked. Item number two, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the FBI's monitoring of a dark web child porn site called Playpen, saying the notion that innocent users would be on Playpen is hardly plausible. Item number three, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the child pornography conviction of a defendant and said, although the agent's laptop was infected with malware, the defendant, quote, presented no evidence in support of his theory that ransomware on the agent's laptop planted child pornography on the defendant's laptop. And finally, number four, in Washington, an appellate court ruled that Bitcoin is a financial asset for purposes of state tax law, saying, although virtual currencies such as Bitcoin do not generate cash flow for those who hold it, they are no different than other currencies, which are considered financial assets. So there's kind of long, let me just summarize it again. Number one, Michigan Facebook posts are admissible in evidence. Um, when on the face of it, they weren't, they didn't appear to be faked or hacked. Number two, a child porn website on the dark web. Anyone that visits it basically is uh, no innocent user. And number three, a, 
another child porn website or this defendant claimed that um, the agent's laptop infected his computer and planted the evidence on his computer. And number four was the Bitcoin is a financial asset under state tax law. Uh, Ryan, since you're our guest, you get to go first. Okay. Um, So I'm going to go with the uh, last one as being the one that's not true. So in listening to all of them, I was trying to go back through uh, the various uh, hundreds of hours of research I've done in these areas and say, what, 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 have I, what sounds familiar and what doesn't? So that, that's kind of the, the path that I was on. Um, I have uh, seen lots of cases, like starting with uh, answer number one, the Michigan one, where evidence is admissible because on its face, uh, you know, it was self-authenticating essentially, right? So I, I eliminated that one. Um, was the next one the playpen? Yes, the, the playpen. Yeah, yeah th- this is the one that was my, uh, I almost chose this as being the fake one, uh, but I, because I, I, I was familiar with the playpen case at one point, but um, I think they ultimately ruled that it was okay. Uh, C, I looked at that one and I said, uh, they were able to prove that up at trial, right? So they got their fair shot at saying there was malware on the computer that, you know, but they didn't show that, uh, it's plausible to me that the court would allow that in uh, if they couldn't actually show any evidence that the mal the malware planted this child pornography or the CP. So I, I was like, you know, what, I think that that sounds okay to me. And then the final one, just because cryptocurrency is so new, um, I think that would be the area where there'd be the least amount of either legislation and or um, legislating from the bench, if you will, on what does or does not count. So that's the one I went with. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, D or four. Is, uh, the one that is not true. Okay, so number four is fake. Lori, what do you think? I, I will agree with our, our resident expert. <laughs> I, well, just based on his conversations with us about cryptocurrency, I cannot imagine that Bitcoin is now um, uh, regulated under state law for financial asset purposes, but everything else seems like something we encounter every day, right? As prosecutors, as, as trial attorneys in the courtroom. And I could see courts making those types of um, findings on appeal in all of those cases. So I, I'm in agreement. Number four, false. Even, even if we're wrong, uh, we're, the assistant chief said so. so <laughs> <laughs> we're all going down together. You're, you're all in. Okay. So let's start in order, uh, number one in Michigan, an appellate court upheld the admission of Facebook posts in a gang murder case saying there's nothing on the face of the post that would suggest that they're faked or hacked. You guys all think this is real and this one is real. You guys got it. However, I picked this one <laughs> because it's the the reasoning of it. It says there's nothing on the face of the post that would suggest that they were faked or hacked. Meaning, can you tell from the from the face of it that they were faked or hacked? I think that the term self-authenticating was perfect because yes. if it's, if it's in context, if it, you know, it doesn't have any, it's something that only the poster would know, blah, blah, blah. That's the area where I've seen these type of posts being upheld as, as far as being admissible. So, so for lawyers, we have to, what you're saying is self-authenticated. We have to authenticate any kind of document or piece of evidence or an exhibit into the record before we could admit it. And before a jury, we have to authenticate it. Um, Lori, you're a gang prosecutor. Uh, have you admitted Facebook posts before into evidence? I, I can tell you that, that Facebook is, is such a key component of our prosecutions and cell phones now. Yeah. And, and basically, you know, we, 
part of the the authenticating aspect is that we're we're usually subpoenaing those records directly from Facebook, which I think helps in terms of authenticating the photographs and the messages. You know, if if I were trying to just print out a page and bring it into court and say, you know, judge, take my word for it, you know, that's different. That's different. It, but normally we do it through the proper channels, obtain the information properly, and we can, you know, essentially figure out whose Facebook you know, account this is and where there's certain identifying information that we all have. And we know this because we're, you know, we're on Facebook that, that links it to us and makes it personal to us. So that's, yeah, we, we, that's our bread and butter right there. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and you know, in this one, they talked about deep fakes, which are really good faked videos and faked, uh, uh photos. But, um, I thought it was interesting because I don't believe just on the face of looking at a Facebook post, you can't tell if it was hacked or faked, but it was interesting that they use that to justify. Obviously we could go through the proper channels. Like Lori was saying, subpoena Facebook, have the records submitted to the court. And then it's up to the jury to decide it's, it's real, like who really posted it. But that is a uh, people V Smith. It was a 2021 case in out in Michigan um, where a gang murderer shot the wrong person and, they were talking about the motive um, on Facebook. So good job, everyone. Let's go to number three. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the child pornography conviction of a defendant and said that although the laptops uh, of the agent was infected with malware, the defendant, quote, presented no evidence in support of his theory that ransomware on the agent's laptop planted child pornography on the defendant's laptop. You guys all think this one is real. And this one is real. United States v. Uh, Juhik. I can't Pronounce it J-U-H-I-C, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal 2020, which I thought was a pretty novel defense. They actually found ransomware on the agent's laptop that he used to connect to examine the evidence. And maybe he he threw it out there and said, what if it infected my my client's computer is what the defense attorneys said. What do you guys think of that defense? It sounds like a very typical <laughs> defense. Honestly. It's not surprising to me at all. As someone that's not familiar with malware or ransomware and, until I hear from Ryan, I thought that was a pretty clever defense. You know, here we have proof that the agent's computer was infected, but nope, it did not. It did not work. So uh, fortunately, the conviction was upheld. All right. So let's go to number two. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the FBI's monitoring of a dark web child porn website called Playpen, saying the notion that innocent users would be on Playpen is hardly plausible. You guys all think this one is real. And this one is real. You guys win. All right. <laughs> Make me sweat it till yes. the very end. This was, <laughs> this was all over the news. This was a recent case. Um, that's why I picked it. I was hoping to trick you guys. But yeah, they basically said they monitored this dark website and that the fact that innocent users would be on this website is hardly plausible. A lot of people don't know about the dark web. No one knows really how to get to it. Maybe Ryan does with the, now we all do with, with Tor. Um, but that one is real. And that means number four is the fake where Washington upheld the, for purposes of state tax law, that cryptocurrency is a financial asset. But do you know which entity did say that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are financial assets? The IRS? The SEC. SEC. Oh, and that's why I threw it out there. I thought I would catch you guys, but it did not. So congratulations. Now I am over <laughs> two on this, on this quiz. I think I'm going to have to stop doing this quiz. <laughs> no, don't. It makes me feel a little bit smarter. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, I, I was worried. I got to say, you know, they were all, uh, 
I know Washington state's going to want their cut soon enough. So yes, exactly. So, you know, maybe right. Washington's listening and they're going to issue a ruling pretty soon here, but, um, <laughs> but it's basically the sec rule that way, not Washington. So it was true in that respect. I should have said the sec and then you guys would have fell for it. Good job, everyone. Thanks, Jorge. That was fun. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It was great. I think we learned a lot and I think we're all sufficiently uh, secure now of how to proceed forward of protecting ourselves with password managers and not clicking on suspicious links. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. Of course. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Pleasure to do this again with you, Jorge. Yes. Thank you, and, Jorge. And, and thank you to the five people out there that are that have listened so far. Yes, those, <laughs> those five downloads are excellent. Um, they include... Lori, me, and my mom and dad. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, my name is Jorge Del Portillo. I'm Lori Hoff. And thank you so much for listening to the Crime News Insider Podcast. expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA's Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be submitted through our website at sddaa.net. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Gone,